Welcome, friends, to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we are off uh, for the holidays. Happy uh, Thanksgiving, everybody. This is uh, when it should be coming out, so hopefully you're enjoying it. Um, but we are releasing this previous Patreon exclusive, uh, Hodorowsky's Dune, which is billed as the greatest film never made, uh, or specifically a documentary about this film. Highly influential, too. Like, yeah. um, we talk about Geiger, who was involved in the creation of the design for Alien. Yeah. The aliens, the um, xenomorphs. Xenomorphs, yeah. And and their whole, just like, everything, the, the look of that film. Look. Um, yeah. And so yeah. you can see some of the design elements pop up in Star Wars all over the place. Uh, right. So so it's wild that this was, was never created. And then eventually David Lynch creates his version, and now we're getting the Denis Villeneuve sort of possibly, you know, ultimate version of Dune at this point. Hopefully uh, the second part sticks the landing. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 really interesting, I think, for fans of Dune to at least know about this. Um, I highly recommend watching the documentary, but, uh, you know, check out our episode on it and, and we'll give you a taste and see if it sounds interesting to you. But there's just so much cool history of Hollywood, history of science fiction uh, caught up in this unmade film. Um, that I had no idea idea about until I watched this. So yeah, really fun one. I remember uh, we recorded this one, I think a little over a year ago. It's a bonus episode for patrons. Speaking of, we just recorded another bonus episode for our patrons. Uh, this is on the fall of the House of Usher. It'll be coming out soon. Um, so in that, I'm talking about the 1960 Corman version of the fall of the House of Usher. So if you want to hear our thoughts on that one, definitely check us out on Patreon. Last thing I'll say before we unlock this thing, this is your last day to get suggestions in to our uh, poll of, over on Patreon to suggest what our next quarterly project will be, um, literally today, Thanksgiving. And then at the end of the day, I'm going to take the ones that have the four most likes, and I'm going to create a dedicated poll for patrons that will run for one week that will determine our next quarterly project. So if you'd like to be able to vote on that poll, now's a great time to become a patron. We'd love to have you over there. All right, and we hope you enjoy this previous Patreon exclusive. We're covering Hodorowsky's Dune or Jodorowsky's Dune. However, that's pronounced. It's yeah. kind of difficult to say. Hodors- and, and we watched- Hodorowsky. It's like, like in my mind, I hear the way it's supposed to be pronounced, but then my tongue fumbles to right. say it right, you know? Well, and not to, in the doc, it's called Hodorowsky's Dune. It came out in 2013, and many people say it many different ways, so I don't feel so yeah, bad. Yeah, does, that doesn't help, yeah. It's a documentary. Uh, if you're curious what it's about, it's about this wild acid trip of a Dune adaptation that almost got made in the 70s, and there's huge implications for, I think, the filmmaking industry. Uh, it, it's just a really interesting topic, and uh, I'm really glad I watched the documentary. Excited to talk to you about it, because... I'm sure you'll have tons of insights, and I'm curious to know what it means to you after watching it. Um, but yeah, before we get to that, I'm just going to briefly talk about something pretty big for me, and that I finally finished. Well, I call it like I finished the book that I've been writing for five years. Now, what does that mean? It's not. It's not actually done. It's not like I'm ready to like post it on Amazon for people to read. I got the draft finished, which even that is a little misleading because. Uh, I've been I've been rewriting this thing and 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 uh, it's gone through many drafts already, but it was never like a completed readable draft until now. It is a wild underwater sort of Western influenced cyberpunk influenced um, sci-fi action uh, thing, and it's 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 sort of 
ambitious and weird and out of my comfort zone because in the past I've written a lot of like fantasy that was my other novel a fantasy novel this is my first sci-fi novel um, and I as I'm watching Jodorowsky's uh, Dune or Hodorowsky's Dune um, I'm just thinking about this guy's like super ambitious wild project um, that didn't end up getting made so I'm like there's also like a cautionary tale here for me but it was also inspiring and it's just like part of me is just going for something that I don't know if it's going to work you know and, and there is an industry of movie making that the, his film ended up hitting and, and, you know, bouncing off of in a way. And there is an industry in writing fiction and bi- doing traditional publishing. And, you know, that's where I'm going to try and go with it. I'm going to try the next step is I've, I've sent, I'm going to send it to the beta readers. They're going to give me feedback and then I'll do a, a, another revision. But I'm hoping but before the year is out to be querying for a new agent, a new literary agent, because I had to fire a previous one. But that's a whole other story. And if I get a new literary agent, knock on wood, then it'll be a process of querying the book to those publishers and seeing if I can find somebody who believes in it in the way that you need, right? It's kind of like trying to find a studio, um, someone who's willing to put money behind it, the publisher's money behind it, because they think that they can do something with it, right? And think it's marketable. Um, so it's an exciting process. There's a lot of things that I don't know how it's going to go. Um, but the thing that had to be done first, and I've been chasing for almost half a decade now, like I think it's actually no more than half a decade, because I think it's over five years I've been working on this, you know, is I had to get the draft done. I had to get it to a readable point where I could send it to some readers and like start getting feedback and start getting it ready. And uh, so this was a big thing for me actually getting it done. I think about five years ago, I bought this like super like over a hundred dollars, I think it was like $130, $140 bottle of Lagavulin Distillers Edition. And I was like, oh, I'll, I'll open this when I finish the draft. And this was back in like 2017. I thought it was going to be like a year, maybe two. And it's just been sitting on my shelf, getting dust on it, you know. So I'm going to open that tonight. Honestly, that's that's my plan because I've done it now. And I'm like, I, I still kind of can't believe that I actually did it. Super exciting. It's not done, quote unquote, but it is um, an important step along the way. I had somebody on Twitter ask me, uh, they're like, oh yeah, I know this stuff takes a long time, but uh, when when's it gonna be? When's it gonna be published? When's it gonna be out? And I'm like, I don't know, man. <laughs> I gotta get a publisher first. Like, I can't tell you when you can actually read this thing. Sorry, I wish I could, but that would take a literal crystal ball because there's so many things that I don't know how it's gonna go. Um, but it's exciting, you know. This is this is what I want to do. I want to be a novelist, and I've been doing short fiction on the side, and and I enjoy doing that. But but novels are, I think, where my heart's at, and. Um, I'm just really excited about this thing. Oh, there's tons of references to ink to film projects in the book. Yeah. Well, I, hold on, hold on. Before we get ahead of ourselves, congratulations on finishing your draft. Seriously, it's a huge deal. Thank you, thank you, man. Yeah, I, I haven't talked to you about it because I figured we'd talk about it today. So I haven't really like you know t- told you about it, talked to you about it at all. I'd been following online. I'd seen some posts and stuff, so I was excited for you. I was shocked when you you posted multiple days in a row that you were breaking records and stuff. Did you feel a little bit like you were channeling Stephen King, like, like some I, sort know, of? You know what's insane? So like, I feel like people who don't write might not know like what does that mean, right? 6,000 words. Let's just call it 6,000, even though it was more than that. 6,000 words. Um, if you do NaNoWriMo, which is the National Novel Writing Month that people do in November every year, they try and write a novel in a month. The novel that they try and write is 50,000 words. So 50,000 words over the course of a month, what does that come out to? I think it's like 1,667 is, is what I believe, words per day. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm writing like... I don't know, four times that 
that's what I did over the weekend. Now, of course, could I keep that up for a month? No way in hell. I kind of hit my stride and like I could see the finish line. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew how the book ended and I just had to get it out. So all of that helped me to like drive through. Whereas early on in a book where you're still discovering, sometimes it's a lot harder to get those words. So like you have good days and bad days. Where was I going with this? I was going to tell you. Oh, uh, ink to film. Ink to film references. So there's a bunch of references in there. I might put a few more in, honestly, through the revision process. Um, some of them are subtle. Some of them are so like overly subtle that I might be the only one who even knows that's what I'm doing. Um, some of them are pretty obvious, <laughs> you know, and I think everybody will get it. Um, but if you're an ink to film listener, I think uh, that would be fun if, if one day when you get your hands on the book is to try and identify how many references to projects that we've covered over the years yeah. are in there because I definitely included a bunch. I'm sure. I mean, I can't even imagine how much like was being infused through yeah. you, you know, like tons of inspiration coming from so many different you know, filmmakers and, and authors all throughout, you know, hundreds of years and stuff. So how could it not? I was going to end like this. I, it's such an interesting time to cover this as well. This Jodorowsky's Dune. Or really is. Jodorowsky's yeah. Dune. So I remember when this came out in 2013. And I remember hearing people talk about Jodorowsky's Dune for a long time and how it was so influential. And f- so I didn't ever understand how it was so influential yeah. when it was never made. I was right. I just didn't, couldn't wrap my head around that. I'm like, how does they, it? They call it the greatest movie never made in the in the documentary. And I totally like I could see it. It's like, how, how does it, how does something that's never made influence everything? And then you go and look at the process, you yeah. go and look at the people who worked on it. And then you, you, they've literally storyboarded with like fantastic storyboarders and comic, created the entire film. Famous comic artists and Geiger, H.R. Geiger. H.R. Geiger. They created this really small, tiny little book that they, that they then took. No, I'm kidding. It's massive. Massive. This, <laughs> yeah. The biggest book I've ever seen, potentially. Book that they took to every studio. Yeah. And from those studios, no one wanted to make it. Everybody thought it was brilliant and amazing. Yeah. No one wanted to make it, though. And so what happens is... Real, real quick, I do just want to say, like, there's a ton of interesting detail. There's so many things. And we're going to hit a good amount of it in this episode. But if you want to actually know everything, like, watch the documentary. Because we can't we can't cover everything. And there's a lot of super cool stories. Um, very speci- Like, a lot of specifics that we'll probably get wrong. So, like... I do recommend watching the documentary. Um, this is going to be a very Cliff Notesy version where we're just reacting to the stuff that was most interesting to us. Right. Having having one covered almost everything that they mention in the film. Yeah. That's like that like sort of is spun off from Hodorowsky's Dune. Or just being a huge fan like Alien. Like I'm a huge fan of Alien. We haven't covered it, but man, I love it. So yeah. And then, you know, but like Alien is Ridley and then Ridley goes on to make Blade Runner, which is yeah. a direct connection to yeah. Ink to Film and like so many of those things. Happening. So, but Alien is 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 H.R. Geiger, obviously design. And then also, uh, what was his name? Dan, Dan O'Bannon, yes. who was one of the guys they brought in to work on this movie. He goes on to write it and work with Geiger. So like the, the connections are direct. Direct. Right. And, you you know, you look at some of the imagery that Geiger was working with. Yeah. Totally, just like what a legend, too. Yeah, and Hudorski himself uh, going on to. By the way, I, I immediately went and bought. Uh, I think it's the Inkle. It's, it's oh, okay. It's uh, the one he made, kind of based off of his Dune ideas. Some of them, like I, I think he spread them all. And out. he's working with um, what's the other guy's name? Uh, yeah, uh, Mobius. He went on to like create yeah, this together with him. And the, he he was the one who was doing the storyboarding. He was like a like a comic book artist turned storyboarder for. Uh, and and then he also had someone who was doing sci-fi covers, like covers of sci-fi. Yeah, that guy was cool. Chris Ross. I, I can't remember all the names. There's so many names. But that guy does, all, like, they showed all these, com- uh, sorry, uh, sci-fi 
novel covers. They're all from the 70s, like this golden era of sci-fi. Um, and I don't know, just really cool, iconic covers. Even for some of them are for books I didn't know, but I think I saw an Asimov color in there, uh, cover in there. Or, was that Foss? F- Foss, yeah, Foss. that's it. Yeah. I thought it was Ross, but it's Foss. Yeah, I think that's yeah. what it was. It's so, it's so interesting. So this person has such a force of, like, for one, gets his start in basically experimental filmmaking, like guerrilla, guerrilla filmmaking. So so before, I'm going to stop you right there, though. So, like, did you, you'd heard about this guy, but you didn't know the story, right? I mean, I knew some of it. And in our, in our, uh, I mentioned Hodorowsky's Dune in our Dune coverage. And, like, you, you know, I knew some of the story. I knew some of the influence. But again, I never, you can't put the pieces together until you know the whole story. Yeah. Yeah, I just I had heard uh, I think Remy, my friend Remy Nakamura, who's been on the podcast, um, he was telling me about it. He had I think watched the documentary, and I had heard a couple other people reference it, and I was like, oh man, I really want to get onto that. So I, I, you know, that's something that I've been wanting to see for a while, um, but I didn't know this guy. He, he's such a wild, mad genius type, but also like out of control like it, it feels like Completely. he's like um, like it's just a mess of a person <laughs> at one point he's just talking about like raping oh, frank God. herbert yeah and no, I, could, that, I was so hurt by the fact that that he, was very uh that was a big yike for me yeah uh, that and then the part before <laughs> he's just saying like any filmmaker who wants to make adapt something is raping the source material yeah. and i was like this doesn't work for me man that's uh yeah mm, choose a different metaphor dude this one's pretty bad <laughs> He's like, he's like rape with love. And I'm like, uh, no, that's not a thing. <laughs> Doesn't make it better. Yeah, it was, that was, that. Uh, he's that kind of guy though. Like, he's very that, yeah. like, just going to say whatever he wants to. And he's from the seventies, obviously making oh, films man. in the seventies. Yeah. And you're watching his, like his movies he made, like they're showing clips from them. And I'm like, holy shit, these are wild. Now the Holy Mountain, I have heard of. It's so weird. Like just the clips of it. I'm like, I can't believe this. And then that, what's that El Toco or something? The other one was also just unbelievable. Just, I mean, like I'm super passionate about how crazy this is. Like just watch this documentary and you get a really good feel for like the influence that's there. And there's tons of filmmakers like um, Nicholas Winding Refn uh like shows up Who's who that? directed like drive oh that guy yeah yeah yeah, yeah. he was cool so i think he's the voice where like, people are like ryan gosling drive yes yeah i like that movie a lot actually i didn't yeah. know that was who that was that's cool he kind of legitimizes i think for for some of the, like the modern viewers yeah he, like him saying all this stuff like legitimizes hodorowsky and makes you realize like holy shit like look at all this influence and then they have to other filmmakers who come in right to our generation and they have other filmmakers come in who talk about you know this is pre. that's another thing we should say pre-star wars yeah, like early, early 70s, like 74, like, yeah. Right, yeah, and and like people are doing a good job to, to show like the scope of what he was going for. Lucas wouldn't even go for in the yeah. prequels, like way, way huge, crazy scope. So we talked about Trumbull recently who did the effects for uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Right. And this he approached this person to do the effects and they just didn't connect well together so this oh, guy's man. like fuck him we don't need him we'll find so, someone so else. fun it's so funny like the stories of, of how he did that like he would go he went and met this guy and the guy was this like slick like hollywood effects guy who everybody was like obsessed with right he's a big deal and he's taking phone calls apparently while he's ta- meeting with with this uh with this guy and he's just like nope this is not going to happen. And he like walks out on him and he's like, no way I'm working with him. Um, he's like, I'm looking for my mystical warriors or something like he, yes. he want his mystical very spiritual, fighters. spiritual. Yeah. He wanted he it was like he, people were comparing him to a cult leader. And I got that vibe from him, like super into it. And then he gets the story, he gives the story about going to meet with Dan O'Bannon. And Dan, I think it was like Dan O'Bannon's was giving the story or maybe it was his wife. I can't remember. But somebody was saying like. 
he shows him <laughs> and he gives him this like he's like this is a very special um, cigarette or something marijuana cigarette and so um, he smokes it and apparently it's got some sort of hallucinogen in it because he like starts hallucinating Hodorowsky like having this Mandela coming out of his head while he's describing the movie to him and he's like just completely taken with it and then by the time he finishes he's like it's you man you need to come work on this movie with me and he goes okay and he goes sell everything you own and move to Paris and and Dan O'Bannon's like all right so he just moves his entire life to Paris it's a it's amazing I mean it's this kind of stuff that you can never like imagine and like these people who are just like black holes that pull everything towards them I think they even call him that at one point yeah and uh he was so passionate about it you could tell like how passionate he was about it one more wild detail he didn't even read the book I couldn't believe it. Like, he meets with this producer who's like, I've seen your movies. Your movies are amazing. What do you want to make? And he goes, uh, Dune. And he's like, all right, we'll make Dune. And then in the documentary, he's like, I hadn't even read it at the time. I had a friend who read it and said it was amazing. So right. I, I just pulled it. He's like, I could have done anything. I could have said Don Quixote. I could have said this other stuff, but I went with Dune. Uh, <laughs> I think he does eventually read Well, sure, because he writes this screenplay based off of it, but he hadn't read it when he, when he pitched to the producer that he was going to make it. Yeah, and so he goes around and he gets people like Mick Jagger and Orson Welles. Every one of those has a wild story attached to it. My favorite one is Salvador Dali. That was one of my favorite stories. So he wants Salvador Dali to play the emperor. He's like, Dali's not an actor. I don't know if he, he maybe had been in a movie or something. I don't know. But he's he's an artist, you know? But he goes and he has this like weird courtship that he describes with Dali where they're both these like, big figures in the surrealist movement at the time. And it seemed like Dolly was aware of him, had seen maybe some of his movies. And so that he was like, they were trying to outdo each other with their just bizarreness. And so he's like sending him a tarot card and like that he's signed. He's, he's asking, uh, Dolly asks him these like weird question about whether he's ever found a clock in a beach or something. Yeah. Like there's all these little tests they're giving for each other. They meet at a, at a art museum to discuss this in front of like this giant painting of a fart or something, apparently. I don't <laughs> That's know. That's what Dali or, interpreted it as. That was yeah. Dali's interpretation. And uh, I just, just the meeting of these two just wild Frenchmen um, just really delighted me. And then the idea that Dali like wanted to be the highest paid actor ever in a movie. Um, and he wanted a hundred thousand dollars per hour or something. And then like they end up negotiating that he'll get a hundred thousand dollars per minute but it's per minute of screen time. <laughs> and so Dolly accepts because I guess it would be like the most ever for him. But like that just also just shows you like how this, the budget is just ballooning out of control already mm-hmm. at this point. Well, and I think the the thing that torpedoed this whole project was like they, ref- he ref- was so uncompromising yeah. in his vision to the point that he said he was going to studios and telling them, I won't, I won't make an hour and a half, two hour movie. I'll make a 20 hour movie. And no studio is ever going to get like, let you do that ever. And I, and I understand that like, you know, it's holding back his vision. I mean, but you do see Peter Jackson nowadays. You see, you see Denny Villeneuve making a multi-part Dune. So like, it's, it's like he was just before his time. That's one thing they said. Like he truly, this was a movie that was being made for before sure. his time. Yeah. And so the, the, I guess to come back around to this, there's this giant coffee table book that would be the coolest piece, like centerpiece in anybody's house. Right. Yeah. Like, Apparently only a few of them exist. Only a couple left. Yeah. And, uh, this was passed around all the studios 
people basically say for a fact that Lucas had his hands on it, was able to look through it. Some of the some of the um, storyboarding, because again, their entire movie was just out there for everyone to see. So you could flick through, look at the storyboards. You could steal shots. You could steal ideas. You could steal H.R. Geiger style from this and choose this there. And so everyone saw this all in the 70s. And then you see the end of the 70s and the early 80s. There's massive influence from this stuff. And now, interesting to note do I think that this movie would live up to and be as good as what this documentary would have you believe? I actually don't know that it would be. No, you know I what I mean? Who who knows? It, if would, it would be, be good. weird. Yes. And it would be it would be something worth watching. It I'm sure it would have a cult following. Would it have made enough money to offset its huge budget? I probably not. Um, so it's almost like the influence of this movie almost being made had more influence than if it had, you know, if it had been made and it was like a flash and like no one cared about it, then it just goes away and nobody talks about so it. So his son, his son in this documentary, um, first off, he was a part of this story that was pretty he wild. He was supposed to play Paul. He was going to play Paul Atreides and he trained with like a master martial artist for years. It seemed like like body and mind to be able to like become Paul Atreides. For years, yeah. The guys that he trained with was Jean-Pierre Vignau. Which is wild that that, that even happened. Um, and he's going to play Paul Atreides, right? But then uh, this movie doesn't end up happening. But at the in the documentary, he, he gave a really good comparison I actually really liked. So in his uh, father's version of Dune, he changed the ending. And at the end of the movie, uh, Paul Atreides gets his throat slashed. I forget by who. And um, he's killed, but when he's killed, his consciousness goes into all the people. I think the Fremen and maybe just everybody. And they all start saying, like, I am Paul Atreides. Yeah, I got to jump in here and say, though, I felt that that wasn't... I was so bummed that that was his, like, masterpiece ending because Spartacus came out before this. Like, so many films had already done the I'm Spartacus and, like, the whole... But this is more of a... It is a very I am Spartacus moment, I guess. But this is, like, a metaphysical sort of, like magical way for everyone yeah. to say I'm Paul Atreides so it's like it is a, it's a play on that though yeah he's, he, it's not just a, like an inspiration like he's actually going into all of these people's right. minds anyway but you're right you're right that's not yeah it's not as, as maybe original as it might sound but it's it, it's definitely weird and interesting and, and a, apparently it's the culmination of a metaphysical you know message behind the movie that like I'll give him the benefit of the doubt maybe would be um, more apparent to us if we'd actually seen the movie and not just documentary about it. Yeah, yeah. So to give him credit, though, he did, the, you know, the the whole, like, I'm I'm Paul Atreides, everything like that. But then, like, the planet completely, like, terraforms or, like, changes immediately and, like, everything switches over. So, like... I think that happens in later Dune books. I'm, I haven't read them, so I don't know if that's, like, a spoiler because it's, it's based off of stuff I've, like, kind of heard about. I think there's some terraforming that goes on. I don't know how it, but it's like, it is instantaneous so it's like the he 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 went on to explain that this is like um i guarantee you he wasn't reading seven dune novels or whatever right (laughs) this is the consciousness of the world and the world is taking on paul's paul's soul as well and all this other stuff and it's like people can change the world that sort of thing like all together if we band together and have like like it is interesting that like frank herbert's novel definitely has a philosophy and a spirituality and some weird ideas in there and i think it just gets weirder over time from what i've heard um so it's interesting, you know, marriage between the two. But anyway, I, the, all of this was to, was to set up this metaphor that his son makes that I actually really liked where he says that, like, his father's Dune is much like Paul Atreides in his version of Dune because although the movie was killed, 
it is popping up in all these other things where they're saying like I am doing I am doing I am doom and he says he sees it and you know Blade Runner he sees it and all this other stuff so um I, I just thought that was a cool metaphor right like and, and it feels that way too like this movie never got made yet its influence is, is felt across the yeah. industry and honestly the justice of it all comes back around to people know and people are so familiar with the influence and then also he threaded all of the things he wanted to do in this Dune film into his comics, which I think is amazing. Like that, that he was still able to express them in in some avenue. That's cool. Um, yeah. so, so like I, you know, I'm gonna definitely be reading his stuff. I t- like I said, I bought one of his comics. Um, I've also heard people talk of that comic before. Never even realized it was Hodorowsky. I never, I had never heard of that one. That's cool. I'm not as like into the comic scene as you are, though. So that makes sense. I haven't heard of it. Yeah, it's just it's pretty crazy to see like the frame by frames. They pull a shot from this from this um from the storyboard and then they show shots from like Flash Gordon shots from Oh, Flash you know. Gordon was the most direct one I think. Uh Raiders of the Lost Ark. There was like a scene like yeah, like different scenes from different things, yeah. And you're seeing the influence these days like if you like the new Thor movies like Ragnarok and Love and Thunder are are Flash Gordon film. Like like they're they're so influenced by that kind of thing like. And, that, and that's the thing the way this inspiration works, right? Like people might not even know that it's going back to this and I'm sure many people don't. They're referencing Flash Gordon, which it was referencing this in some ways it seems like like a lot of the costuming was so so the costuming was like bright and garish and weird and I don't know how much it would have worked, but like it was, it was, you know, like his whole thing was like letting artists come in and do their own weird shit and, and just embracing it and not caring if it worked. And that was his message in the documentary. He's like, just try it. Nobody cares if you fail, like have ambition, make the movie of your dreams, you know? And, and I found that inspiring um, but you know, and, and not his message, but the message I'm also taking away from it was that you have like, you can have that vision, but you might want to try tempering it to reality if you want it to become a real thing and not something that only exists in your imagination. It is amazing to think, though, like this is pre-Star Wars. People were saying this kind of stuff to George Lucas making Star Wars. You know what I mean? So like someone has to push it along. Yeah, And that's the thing. Like sometimes sometimes you make it. But like it does feel like something about the uncompromising vision of this guy is why it didn't happen. If he had been willing to compromise even a little, it might have actually gotten made. And I don't know, like there's something nice about being like, I never compromise, you know, but like the thing didn't get made. So I don't know. I don't know what I don't know what the message is there. Like, I wanted to ask you what how does this make you feel about movies? Does it make you feel cynical about the industry because it it didn't embrace something like this fully? I think that Alejandro Hodorowsky came from experimental indie filmmaking to the extreme, right? He came up making whatever he wanted. No one gave him a shot. He had this movie that happened to happen to like have a cult following then leverage that into getting a million dollars to make Holy Mountain, which was crazy for the time. And it was insane. And people loved it for that fact. Um, I think when you start talking about larger budgets and you start approaching Hollywood studios, because he wasn't approaching Hollywood studios before this, then you start approaching Hollywood studios. They're they talk to Disney. Right. Yeah. They're money makers. They're they're machines. They they that they exist to make people money. So like the artistry, like I think most filmmakers and most people who 
who know the industry and know art in this way and any industry really they want to see everyone who watches this documentary wants to see his final vision they're like why couldn't they just you know take a risk and give him the money on this chance because they make they make it take a risk all the time with movies that don't deserve it you know and i think that's where people come back to but it ultimately comes back to the people who sign the checks aren't always artists well he says that in the movie he's like they're accountants you know yeah. And yeah. so like it, it, you can't approach Hollywood. And, and I think nowadays people understand that. So for me to feel cynical about it, we're also in like sort of a post studio system society at this point where like there are other avenues. There are there are large platforms that are willing to, you know, shell out money for some project. 24 making yeah. wild movies. That exactly. Are I mean, Jordan Peele, Jordan Peele's new note movies like out in theaters right now. And I know that it's I haven't even seen it yet. And I already know that it's going to be like one of those envelope pushing films yeah. where I mean he's a proven money maker now though. Right. Yeah. But that comes from, you know, proven success over yeah. time. And, he had and to earn that. So and I think that's the thing. Like like I think auteur directors now like understand that there's a game that they're playing. Yeah. And like you said, you kind of have to make a compromise to get it made. Otherwise you make something and put it out on your own or yeah. finance it on your own and make it a passion project and do your best to do it. But if you want the studios to back you, like that's their money. You you know, you gotta guarantee something there. And so to say, no, I'm gonna make a twenty hour film. And I don't know if he's like exaggerating in the moment to the docu to us, the documentary crew, you know, like saying like this is but I don't know if he was telling like no it's gonna be 20 hours to them I, I wanted them to say what his actual expected runtime was because I was unclear on that um, maybe he didn't have one maybe it was just a super massive book that he didn't know right and that's the other thing the the, the effort that went into the book like although the tragedy is there again it am I I'm not cynical because like I don't know that this film would have done well I think it would have been an amazing watch I don't know if it would have made people money right but I mean like so many movies that we look back on were box office flops, but it have gone on to be really important cult followings. You know, could it have been something like that? Maybe, maybe. Um, so, you know, I am of two minds about this thing too, because it reminds me a lot of traditional publishing and a lot of the stuff that people argue about with traditional publishing. They're like, why do you want to go into this system that is there to make money? Like you said, like it's the same as these movie studios. And they want to look at your book as a commodity and decide whether or not they can make money off of it. And then they'll decide how much how much of their capital they want to invest in it based off of how much money they think they can earn. All of that is like um, like accounting, right? Like it's all of that is is business. However, to be fair, a lot of the people who get into this industry get into it because they love books. And I'm sure that's true in movie making as well, right? Like people get into the industry because they love movies, even if they're not the people who are directing and they're the money people like they still probably love movies. Not all of them, maybe, but most of them. Um, so, so it's, it's of course a little more complicated than that, but because of this, you see a lot of people saying self-published, then you don't have to worry about the system. You don't have to worry about any of that. Um, and there's something to be said for that. And, and I bet there is really weird avant-garde, um, indefinable kind of art being made that doesn't appeal to traditional publishers and either goes the route of like a smaller indie press or just self-publishes. And whether or not it goes on to find an audience, you know, I think it varies. But um, there are other avenues, like you said, and that makes me feel a little better about it when I start feeling cynical. And ultimately, I think what, what we see in the film industry is like people taking chances, doing interesting things and creating like proof of concepts or short films and bringing them to festivals. And in that way, I think you've talked about how like short film, short fiction 
is sort of the experimental yeah. avenue that like uh, is ahead of traditional publication. Yeah. So like that's I think that's the same kind of thing going on with film where you might go see a, an experimental film or you might go see something that's just alien to you but will you know push the needle and, and like get people interested in that sort of thing and every once in a while one of those you know is a massive hit and then they get the financing based on that you know in the in the after film festival that's why honestly film festivals tend to be like a situation where you you bring your movie hoping that someone will see it and want to want to finance either a larger version or will like distribute it i mean this stuff gets me so pumped man like i like you can tell that i'm excited i can tell you're excited i i watch this thing and it's inspiring um i like to see artists who are passionate I thought one of the best moments, speaking about what we're talking about in the whole documentary, was toward the end when he's talking about the movie not getting made. He is like pounding the table basically and getting angry. You can tell he's got anger about this. It's not like he wasn't raging, but like you could tell he's passionate, right? And he pulls out his wallet and he's like, this, you know, is controlling it. We're slaves to it. And he's showing money. And he's like, you know, it does it's meaningless, it's empty, and it's determining what art is getting made and what our lives are about. And it was this like kind of great, like anti-capitalist moment. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I was kind of cheering him on, even though, you know, like you said, I, I don't know how much I would actually love this movie if it, if it came out. I don't know, but I want stuff like that to get made. I want people like this to have the chance to make it. And I kind of agree with him when he's talking about that. Um, so, it, you know, again, like I'm kind of of two minds about it because I'm, I've always been kind of a realist who is willing to see the world, like I, I, I want to be aspirational and, and shoot for ideals, but I also am willing to see the world as it is and recognize real limitations that, that exist and try and work within those frameworks. Um, so on one hand, like I'm, I, I want him to be able to make this movie and succeed. And I know dreamers like that are important to get to push the art form. But on the other hand, I also think there's a, a cautionary tale here about making sure your ambition doesn't get so big that it can sink your ability to actually create the thing that you want to create. And someone came on, producer, somebody came along and, and said in the doc about like, if someone had just set them aside and said like, we have to, you know, we have to pitch this in a way that seems appealing to the studio for studio reasons. The movie gets made because everyone was blown away by the by the book. They had already created the entire film. They just had to go shoot it. They had already talked, approached actors. They had everybody on board. Um, and, you know, it, it's a, it's a it's unfortunate. And again, I think the legacy that lives on because of it is bigger than yeah. what the film may have even been. They had fucking Pink Floyd on to do music for the movie. <laughs> like how, every time that you would talk about some per, like person that you were going to get, I'm like, oh, there's no way he's getting them. And they got them. And like, they agreed to do it. And I'm like, holy shit, I can't believe it. And that. I think it, it could have come together to be something incredible. No question. And, and what's crazy is it could have been genre defining in the way that Star Wars was. And they talk about like, how does that shift our entire like film history in ways to like, you know, if to, this like, movie gets made, the whole industry is different. If it's the Star Wars before yeah. Star Wars, like what what is the industry like? You know that yeah. if it defined blockbuster filmmaking, like it would have been totally different. So real quick, uh, I wish this documentary had been made a little bit later, so that we could have heard some reactions to Denis Villeneuve's movie. I kept thinking about it and like wondering what people would have thought of it because there was a lot of talk yeah. about Lynch, and it seemed like he had a lot of respect for Lynch, 
And he, there was this whole story about he went to see the movie and he was like so upset because he thought that Lynch was going to nail it. But then he saw the movie and was like, oh, this is bad. This was, the producers did this, not Lynch. And like, I was so, I was so happy to see that, like him sticking by like another, like, again, like eccentric auteur filmmaker who got his start in like experimental weird filmmaking stuff. Like, that's awesome to see them, like, to, to see them like come together and respect each other. And for him to be like, it's a piece of shit. There's no way d- he made it. <laughs> yeah. That, it ended up being kind of true, you know, in our research of it. It yeah, seems like yeah, super hamstrung by by studio and it. I mean, this is also like okay. So speaking about the new Dune, this really drives home for me how insanely difficult it is to make a Dune movie, right? Like if you look at the history of trying to make Dune, holy crap! And that's what Denis Villeneuve's like signing up for. He's like, yeah, I'm gonna make a Dune movie. I, this was my final wrap up. Was gonna be to mention the the Denis Villeneuve thing and just like. The influence has to be there. There's no way you make a Dune film without Hodorowski's There was influence. a whole storyboard where they showed the ornithopters with freaking like insect wings. And it looked pretty dang similar to how they look in the new one. Yeah. If everybody else is stealing from this this like manuscript of, of a film, if you, the storyboard, everything's there, how could you possibly walk into a Dune film and not want to to use some of those assets and in, in like you know i know he he a lot of it was like really bombastic and over the top yeah but a lot of it also had like good filmmaking in there and like good ideas for for designs and uh, it would have been crazy to like to think that denny villeneuve didn't didn't use it as an asset um and and i'm sure hodorowski would appreciate that at this point i'm sure he's a filmmaker that he admires he he's talking about orson wells right he's talking about this iconic shot and he's like, I wanted to do that, but better. And he's like, wants to cast Orson Welles to play, you know, Baron Harkonnen. And he has to do this whole thing with with him about how he, like, convinced him to be in the movie. But then he got Orson Welles to, you know, agree to play Baron Harkonnen. And Orson Welles is notoriously one of the hardest people to ever work with. And he's, you know, it's, it's just wild. That's who this he guy, wants. He's like, it's got to be him because he's so wild and, di- and like, hard to work with. I want people like that. Well, not to mention, he, he must, like, you know, making films in the 70s, like, seeing Orson Welles and knowing Citizen Kane. And yeah. It's so funny that these projects still collide. Like, we covered Touch of Evil on another podcast. And then, like, the the Warner from the very beginning. I mean, incredibly famous Warner. But, like, to think that he saw that and was like, let me draw inspiration from that. And then make some like yeah. ridiculous. And then they connected that to Contact and said that Contact maybe was inspired by his storyboard to make their opening. Just really cool, man. Um, oh, Terminator. Apparently there was like a, a sequence in Terminator where they think maybe was inspired by this. Now, I don't know if all of this is true, but. First person heads up display kind of thing and seeing that in film. They're kind of saying that it was one of the first times that it had been done. Yeah. So, like, I don't know. It's just super cool. Very exciting, but also tragic, right? In, in a way that it that it never happened. All these people who seemed like they really sacrificed a lot. And honestly, it seems like almost everybody was fine except for him a little bit. Like, he didn't make another movie, it seemed like, after that, or not many at least. Um, And then um, at the end of the documentary, they did reveal that he was rejoining with that original producer to make another film in 2013. Um, So it's cool to see him kind of like back on the horse doing something. But it seems like it kind of sunk him for a while and, and, and stole a lot of his you know, energy because this, this thing, it was an embarrassment. They said for him that it didn't happen. I can totally see that again. I I think the other thing that like is a blessing that it did exist and was able to be made is his comic books. Like the way that he was able to create those comic books and, and just showing like outside of the DC Marvel sort of stratosphere, like there's plenty of comic books that are so influential and like he would still go on to 
put a lot of the stuff in those comics. Like, I think that's amazing. Yeah, I, I do think it's tragic that obviously it didn't work out how he, how he would have hoped, but that's the risk that we take as artists, right? Like, we're, we're, like, putting ourselves out there, and sometimes it doesn't work out. Absolutely, man. I mean, speaking about the novel, like, that's something I've already thought about is, like, would it be embarrassing if this book never does what I want it to do? Absolutely, it'll be embarrassing. But, you know, when that happens, it's like you can either let it sink you and you can, you know, never do it again, or you can keep trying. And so I, I already know I'm going to keep trying. Um, you know, what, might I change some sort of my tactics or something? Sure, but like, I'm not going to give up if it doesn't work and I'll do something else that is still writing related. So yeah, I, I think there's a lot of interesting lessons for artists, I think, in this documentary. So it's really cool to watch. And, and, and even for someone like me who's not a filmmaker, um, but just someone who tries to make art, even genre itself is kind of considered this. And it's funny because they're making a genre movie, right? they're making a sci-fi movie. It itself is tied to like sort of this populist like you're making a thing that already has an established audience. A lot of the people who are genre fans like that genre and you're appealing to fans of that genre. Um, So there's already some potential capitalist motivations behind what you're doing. So this is all so messy. And so there's it's not a clearly defined border between trying to make money and trying to make art. Um, when you're making something that you're going to sell and you're going to want people to go pay money to see or pay money to read, there is a capitalist uh, component to that as long as you are operating in that sort of society. And we are. So I don't know. I, I, it's, it's, it's complicated. So, like, I, you know, I just kind of gave my whole spiel about how I feel about it. But, like, I really am curious on your end as someone who, like, you've worked in commercials, you've done the things that you need to do to make money in the industry. You've seen lots of different kinds of movies get made. How do you feel about that compromise that artists are having to, to strike to get things made? Like, and, and like, and you already said you're not cynical about it, but like beyond that, like how, how do you feel about that? Like is, do you think that that's good in any way or is it, is it, just natural what is it so i I don't think of myself as so uncompromising that like is not willing to listen to any other perspectives if you start talking about rape in books i think we're we're in trouble (laughs) right so so like when i when i see someone like this like in a similar way to you there's a realist there's a realist in me that doesn't think that i would personally go this far because i want my stuff to get made i wanted to i would compromise i would do my best to collaborate you know, as unfortunate as that may be, you know, I, but th- there are the filmmakers out there that are so single vision with their with their work. And I've always felt that like the the relationship between like commerce and art is sort of I don't like it. I don't like that, like capitalism and all these other things come into play with this. But I do think that like an artist completely untethered in some ways can create things that aren't generally appealing so i guess if you're trying to appeal like a large group of people you do need a sort of parameters to keep your vision within because otherwise you're just creating experimental films that go on for 24 hours or whatever and like not a lot of people see that and it's it might be groundbreaking but the thing is like if you want to i in my opinion if you want to affect the culture if you want to leave a lasting mark on the culture you have to do something that a lot of people are going to see and you have to find that balance between the two and they have to pay currency for your ideas james you capitalist pig exactly (laughs) how dare you yeah no i mean i get what you're saying man because like we, we 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 love an idea of this like free art that everyone can appreciate and yet the artists still can like pay their bills if they have bills or just like live off the like largesse of society 
Um, but we don't live in a world like that, you know? And um, so right now the system is I make something that people are willing to spend their money on. And in order to get someone to spend their money on it, you have to appeal to an audience. And that audience needs to be large enough to support what you're putting behind it, right? And in order to actually make enough money for it to, to pay out. And when you start talking about movies, those money amounts get really, really big, really easily. Um, and, you know, it's there's some truth to what you're saying. But, like amazing things get made sometimes when you ignore that shit. So like, yeah, it goes both ways. And like, I, I don't know, man, this is just an interesting case to talk about. Right. Yeah. If we don't have the people to push along new ideas and, and like sort of break the status quo, then we're going to become like, just like everything's a Marvel movie, like cookie cutter sort of thing, which I'm not for. We're obviously. kind of moving that way. I mean, it's like mega franchises, you know, right. what's the next star Wars series coming out? And you know, Disney kind of owns everything eventually and is the mega the, the mega studio in control of everything. Yeah. And I've mentioned this kind of stuff to you before, but you look at a filmmaker like Christopher Nolan who did the Batman films and then he like uses that to leverage his artistic films. Oppenheimer. I'm so excited about Oppenheimer. Man. Right. So you can't, you know, you're going to get those artistic films and you get the name recognition. You see Chris Evans as Captain America and then you go want to you want to go see him in another film that's like an indie film. I don't want to take it for granted that we're going to get that though, you know? Like yeah. what if what if the next generation that is getting drummed out of the industry if it's if it's moving in a direction of of you know Marvel and moving away from auteur. Like I don't know. I, I guess it's like I'm a little worried, but I, yeah. I don't know enough to really say. You I know? think everybody's worried. I, I don't think that there's a realistic expectation that anything will ever go away like that because these things, as much as people don't want to admit it, like the the cowboy movies were the largest movies in the world for a while. The st the superhero movies were we're definitely seeing the most amount of superhero fatigue I've ever seen in the industry, and so like we're getting to a point where Marvel might not be the highest grossing films of all time. They might still be high grossing. They might not always. I be I mean, the everything most high everywhere grossing. all at once just made a hundred million dollars, right? Right, right, and that's that's what I mean. Like there there is that balance, and then also the democratization of platforms like although it sucks to have to pay for all these streaming services there are different avenues for things to get made and different companies willing to shell out money to get these things made it, and, and it's sort of like this the, the audience is so big now as there's more people than ever obviously with growing populations but also just like like you said streaming services there's more avenues um yeah. it's fractured in a way but there is an audience out there for a lot of stuff that would have been really hard to find in the past and then that's not even to mention, like, the biggest obstacle, I think, is going to be this idea of where do theaters end up? Where, what, like, where do we see these things at? And I think we're always going to have theaters. I think that people want to leave the house to go have these massive experiences because it does feel bigger, like, larger than life. But it's just about access to them, like how how easy or hard are they to 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 get a hold of? And, you know, that's the tragedy of all is like we, we we're definitely closing a book. We're closing like a chapter at least in a book to where like we're moving into something different and it's not going to resemble what it was before. But I think like the entertainment, the idea of storytelling is always going to be something that people seek out for big events and for things that are different. So I have faith that that like we're not going to see the end of the film industry and everybody's going to stay home forever and just watch everything on their phone. So. We'll see how it all goes. We got to wrap it up, man. We've gone long. Um, thank you all so much for listening. Until next time. Keep adapting.